This is Deep Fish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines and critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about Venezuela on the heels of a botched coup attempt amid a global pandemic and during a years-long economic meltdown. Before the first cases of COVID-19 were discovered in March, Venezuela was already in turmoil. The United States had ramped up its maximum pressure policies to weaken President Maduro through sanctions. The economy saw the biggest peacetime decline of gross domestic output in history. A third of Venezuelans were going hungry, and five million had already fled the country. Now, Venezuela's 28 million citizens face a global pandemic and a stalled economy, as well as crippling oil shortages and a potential famine. Will President Maduro weather yet another storm and hold on to his power? Or is a new era for Venezuela ahead? To help us understand the situation, I'm joined by Michael Camilleri, who is the director of the Peter D. Bell Rule of Law Program at the Inter-American Dialogue. Welcome to Deep Dish, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Ivan Briscoe, who is the program director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the International Crisis Group. Welcome, Ivan. Great to have you here as well. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Michael, I was wondering if I could start with you and just ask you to briefly describe kind of what conditions are like in Venezuela and what, you know, at setting a little bit of context of what, you know, this this seven year process of of decline and, and, and trouble. Sure. Thanks, Brian. I, I think you set it up pretty well. Um, Venezuela was already a country really in intensive care. Uh, suffering from a contraction of about two-thirds of its economy since 2013 when Nicolas Maduro came to power. Uh, Inflation rates that have uh, currently are in in the four digits. Um, Widespread uh, shortages, uh, including of food, that have left a third of the population hungry, but but potentially as much as 60% uh, more of the population at risk uh, of going hungry. Uh, and not surprisingly, uh, this mass exodus of uh, some 5 million Venezuelans, which has slowed due to the pandemic, uh, but, uh, but nonetheless represents the second biggest displacement crisis in the world uh, after, uh, after Syria. Um, this, of course, is coupled with a, an institutional and democratic uh, decay uh, and, and decline over the course of really 20 plus years since Hugo Chavez came to power, but which has accelerated under uh, Nicolas Maduro. So, um, you know, life in Venezuela is uh, pretty fragile, uh, pretty precarious and, and often brutal, uh, including high levels of, of uh, common violence as well as uh, political violence. Um, that pre-existing crisis is now exacerbated, of course, uh, by the pandemic uh, and by this uh, collapse in global oil prices, uh, which has reduced Venezuela's already struggling oil industry, which is the the real lifeblood of its economy, uh, to tatters. And Ivan, if you could build on that and give us a sense of, with COVID-19 present, how did the Maduro regime respond to this? And what and to what extent has it exacerbated an already difficult situation? Well, I, I think Michael's panorama is, is absolutely accurate. Um, but I, it, it's very interesting. Uh, but despite the, the campaign of, of maximum pressure, which was, which was extremely intense last year, 
uh, and the, the the predictions from a huge range of those uh, wanting Maduro to leave office that that you know his fate his demise was imminent. He still made it to the end of of last year, and there there are many reasons for that. Uh, and by the start of this year, it seemed that his position was actually relatively secure. Uh, he had saw he sought to take over the the National Assembly, which was the base of the the opposition campaign, was the the platform on which his his rival Juan Guaido could declare himself the interim president or challenge Maduro's claim to be the legitimate president of of Venezuela. He tried to take that over in January. Some of the economic variables out there were not uh, were no longer as bad as they were because fundamentally he had. Maduro had scrapped all the extremely ineffective uh, controls over prices and currencies and imports which had been introduced. But then, obviously, uh, despite this this seeming you know return to control, uh, the, the, the 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 halt in the in the U.S. led uh, campaign to to unseat him, uh, Maduro faces now this pandemic, and and it's interesting what's happened. I mean, immediately the first few cases uh, arrived in Venezuela in March. Uh, Venezuela declared a, a a national lockdown, a tough lockdown. Uh, the the number of cases seems to have been relatively low by uh, by Latin American standards. Only a few hundred until now. Of course, we have reasons to doubt the quality of the reporting and the quality of the testing. But uh, there are also good reasons to think that well, maybe Venezuela's not been so exposed as other Latin American countries because it had so few international travelers coming in in February and March. And of course, transport between Venezuelan cities is very difficult. But but putting that to one side, even though Venezuela seems to have done relatively well in halting the pandemic, the economic effects have been absolutely tremendous, starting first and foremost with the collapse of oil prices. That's an international phenomenon. But what it means for Venezuela is that Venezuela cannot sell its oil at a profit on the international markets anymore. And that means the main source of revenue of the Venezuelan state no longer exists. I mean, this is uh, tremendously important for the future of the country. It's also very difficult for Venezuela to import food anymore due to all the problems of, you know, of moving products and commerce around from one country to the next. It's very difficult for, for Venezuela to move food from its own fields, its own farms, to the market because of the lack of basic transport fuel, most of which has to be imported because the refineries are broken. Uh, there's in, uh, the inflation has has uh, food inflation has risen again as a result, and of course there's still the looming. Help prospect of a worsening pandemic. Now, this hasn't happened so far, but were it to happen, bearing in mind that, of course, Brazil is a major center of infection, so that's on the south of Venezuela. I mean, it's a, it's a long way from the center of Venezuela, but there might be still be some transmission going in that direction. Um, or there, is, there are centers of transmission which have not actually been spotted so, so far in Venezuela. Were the pandemic to take off, then, of course, uh, Venezuela would face the, a, a very significant challenge because its health system is not up to handling so many cases. There are only estimated 80 ventilators 
for intensive care patients in the whole country. And Michael, I want to layer on to this um, the U.S. policy response during this period, because, uh, you know, it appears that some in the administration uh, have seen this uh, as an opportunity to exploit Maduro's vulnerability. And I, I guess I'm thinking about in the end of March, the Trump administration indicted uh, him as well as a number of his top officials on narco trafficking charges. And then there was followed up by a naval operation in the Caribbean um, that uh, the regime interpreted as a as a prelude to blockade or invasion. Is indeed U.S. policy actually engaging in this moment and trying to drive forward what is U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy, which is regime change in the country? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are some contradictions in U.S. policy as it stands. And and you're right to point to these uh, really three uh, moves in in late March and early April. Uh, One was the indictment of Maduro and other top officials on uh, narco-terrorism charges. The second, as you mentioned, was this naval mobilization in the Caribbean that was uh, meant to to send a message. Uh, And the third was the announcement by Secretary of State Pompeo of what they call the democratic transition framework, which actually um, was more of a conciliatory move. It was uh, the first time that the U.S. had had kind of embraced a, a potential negotiated and political uh, transition to uh, an interim government, uh, or at least a, a transition kind of unity government in Venezuela that would convene new elections and that would not include Maduro, but also would not include the opposition leader, uh, Juan Guaido, who the U.S., recognizes as interim president. So you had these three kind of consequential moves happen in quick succession, uh, but seemingly pulling in different directions. Two uh, aimed at, at kind of, you know, piling on the pressure. Um, and, and as you mentioned, uh, looking to exploit um, the the weakness uh, that, that Maduro seems to be uh, facing in light of, you know, the economic crisis and, and particularly the, uh, the oil, uh, situation. Um, but then at the same time, kind of, uh, trying to, to create a pathway, uh, to, to some sort of political settlement. Uh, of course, uh, the, the things worked, uh, in, in contradiction of one another. Maduro was very quick to, uh, reject the the idea of this transition framework, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this. But in light of the uh, kind of failed uh, mercenary incursion uh, about a week ago, uh, it seems very unlikely that you're going to see any sort of uh, move towards uh, political negotiations. And Maduro will, will likely, uh, despite these these kind of structural weaknesses, uh, look to, uh, to to double down on his persecution of the opposition and and actually uh, kind of dig his heels in. So that's exactly where I wanted to go next was this, what really strikes one as a bizarre uh, attempt, this incursion, coup attempt, whatever um, it, it was. Um, and, and I was wondering if one of you could just kind of briefly lay out the outlines of, of what seems to have happened there. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, what we, it's a very murky episode indeed. But what we seem <laughs> to have understood uh, uh, was that from the middle of last year, um, a number of deserters from the Venezuelan uh, army and, 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 and armed forces generally, under the command of a dissident Venezuelan general called Cliver Alcala, um, consorted, colluded, with uh, U.S. 
mercenaries who were brought in as advisors, organizers, uh, and set up camps in Colombia with the aim of carrying out an armed incursion into Venezuela with the obvious goal of, of toppling Nicolas Maduro. Now, uh, this initiative seems to have been uh, communicated to leaders of the Venezuelan opposition, although it's still very uncertain to what extent the Venezuelan opposition leadership, Guaido in particular, supported it. Uh, there's a lot of intense debate about that at the moment in Venezuela. I, I wouldn't really want to go into it. Uh, there's also uh, there also seems clear that the knowledge of this uh, episode was uh, communicated to the Colombian government as well. It seems very likely the U.S. government or parts of it knew as knew it of, of it as well. But at the same time, it's clear that it had no real official support. So the soldiers in their bases in Colombia were going hungry. There was a degree of desperation. People were leaving the bases. There seemed to be no sort of, you know, coherent uh, uh, mission plan afoot. Um, and then a few weeks ago, news of this news of this 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 mission was uh, revealed uh, in an in an article in the Associated Press. Um, and just two or three days later, there was an armed landing by some members of the of this um, uh, of, of this offensive force in Venezuela. They were very easily vanquished. Uh, the, the initial the initial landing force was was defeated. Um, others uh, who managed to get into Venezuela uh, were have been arrested over the course of the last few weeks. There are still arrests going on at the moment, and of course, no one got anywhere near the mission, which appeared to be. Uh, arriving at the, uh, the, the the taking control of the main airport near Caracas on the coast near Caracas, getting hold of Nicolas Maduro um, and flying him out of the country. All of this is extraordinary because how would it be possible for a force of an estimated sixty combatants? to break through the security barriers around Miraflores Palace, the presidential palace in Caracas, get to Maduro, uh, get him out of Caracas, which is a very big city, of course, get him to the airport and, and get a plane to, to remove him. All of this is, to me, uh, virtually incomprehensible. But uh, that seems to have been the plan. Yeah, uh, one person uh, characterized it as the Keystone Cops meets the Bay of Pigs, um, <laughs> which was pretty witty uh, characterization. Michael, is there any evidence that that this was part of U.S. policy in in any uh, any way, and that this had any um, sanction from the U.S. government? I, I don't think uh, we have any evidence of that. Um, uh, you know. Uh, the, the administration has said that if this had been a, a U.S. operation, it would have been much more effective. And I think that's that's probably right. At the very least, you know, the these these soldiers would have had enough to eat uh, as they as they trained for this incursion. So um, I, I don't think we've seen any evidence. I'd be frankly surprised if, if evidence emerged that this was in any way directed and coordinated um, by the U.S. government. Um, I do think, as Ivan suggested, um, it's very likely uh, the U.S. government, at least parts of it, were aware of this. Um, uh, you know, the, the, one of the, the kind of farcical characteristics of this whole episode uh, is that it actually leaked uh, to the Associated Press a couple of days before the attack took place. You would think that would have been uh, the end of things, but these guys went ahead anyway and tried to 
uh, invade Venezuela. So um, if the Associated Press was reporting on this and apparently uh, the operation was deeply infiltrated by Venezuelan intelligence, then uh, it seems uh, quite likely that that uh, the U.S. and Colombian governments were also aware this was happening, whether they kind of knew it was going to go ahead, whether they did anything to try to dissuade it. I think those are questions that we're still waiting for answers to. So, you know, well, uh, you know, I, as I just did, you know, laughed at the farcical nature of the invasion. The consequences on the people of uh, Venezuela, of course, are very significant. And uh, Ivan, how do you see this playing out in terms of Maduro's uh, hold on power? Is this likely to uh, affect his ability to continue to control the country in any way or another or reinforce it, perhaps even? I think this is a, a central question because the gamble, clearly in parts of U.S. policy at least, is that uh, the government is is weaker than it has been for a long time because of all the, the effects of the, the pandemic. And here's the moment to, to push hard. Uh, and by pushing hard against Maduro, the belief is that uh, some of his allies in the government, in the military, in the civilian regime will break ranks. Will, will form a critical mass that could effectively push out Maduro and his clique, uh, take power, uh, and then negotiate some form of democratic transition with the opposition. This is, this is the ideal. Um, and there's no doubt that the conditions in Venezuela are, are, are extremely hard at the moment. There are a wide number of protests just in the last few weeks, aside from the the, armed, the failed armed incursion. We've seen major riots in jails with a tremendous death toll of dozens. We've seen an ongoing shootout in a huge, very important neighborhood to the east of Caracas between two rival gangs. Uh, we know of the, 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 the hunger of people on the streets. We also know that electricity, gas, water supplies are, are failing, even in relatively well-off parts, protected parts of Caracas. So the situation is, is, is very delicate. Now, to, to Maduro's advantage, political advantage, is the fact that he, is, he presents himself as being under attack from the U.S. empire. And obviously, to an extent, there is some truth in that. The measures taken from the United States are aimed at removing him. Um, and that is something he can use to try and shore up his base, uh, to say, look, I am the head of the government. We are the Chavista force. We are the sons and daughters of the movement created by Hugo Chavez, who remains Venezuela's most popular politician, even from the grave. Uh, according to pollsters, uh, and therefore come gather around me. We will resist this 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 imperial offensive. That's that's worked to an extent so far. He will also, of course, make use of his security forces and and where necessary, increase and intensify the repression against the opposition. Um, which has been existing for a number of years already. There are hundreds of political prisoners in Venezuela. And of course, the powers of the National Assembly have long been emasculated. But there is the risk that this time it might not work because uh, given the level of discontent, disquiet, protest, unease in the country, there may be uh, eruptions of violence and protest which could lead to waves of mobilization or fragmentation of the armed forces or even some small flare-ups of armed conflict. And we don't know whether this is the only 
uh, armed incursion, rebel uh, armed incursion force, which had been planned, the one which made its landing uh, a couple of weeks ago. Could there be other such rebel forces built out of the the thousand or so deserters from the armed forces last year around Venezuela or in Venezuela itself, ready to ready to pounce? We're not certain about this. All in all, the panorama I would say is is extremely difficult. But uh, the problem is that uh, the United States and the opposition wish for a clean transition, wish for that that you know. That that scenario which which I pointed to, which is the 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 the, the cohort of military and civilian leaders around Maduro, pushing him out, as it were, uh, negotiating his surrender, maybe even handing him to U.S. judicial authorities, and then taking power and leading a transition. The problem, of course, is that in such a an extremely stressed, discontented, uh, malnourished, hungry environment as Venezuela is at the moment, there is no guarantee that there's going to be anything like an orderly transition. There could be very well a disorderly transition or simply the start of various forms of armed conflict on the ground because there is no guarantee that we will see any such peaceful handover of power in such an environment. And, and Michael, I want to bring you in on this as well. And, and how do you see that current situation for Maduro? And what might we expect uh, from U.S. policy in order to move the situation forward? I think Gavin has laid this out uh, brilliantly in terms of the, the different considerations. Um, you know, Maduro certainly gets a, a short-term propaganda victory out of this uh, mercenary episode. Um, he will exploit that to the maximum. Uh, you know, Maduro has been alleging U.S. plots to overthrow him for years now. And however farcical this episode was, it does, you know, give him uh, a leg to stand on in, in claiming that the empire is is coming to get him. Uh, and he will use that as a pretext, already has, uh, to further persecute uh, the opposition and, and indeed uh, anybody he sees as a threat or a critic. Uh, so there's a short-term boost for him there. There's also um, consequences, I think, for the opposition. Uh, Guaido will have uh, a, a hard time, I think, an uphill climb uh, to try to reassert his authority, to reassert um, his credibility both internally and, and abroad, um, and and consolidate the the unity of the opposition uh, coalition, which is is increasingly uh, fragmented again. So um, I, I think in the short term, this does accrue uh, to Maduro's advantage, but but obviously it changes none of the structural issues uh, that uh, that Ivan pointed to, uh, and all of those are working against Maduro. But what it does mean is that any kind of uh, transition scenario that's that's visible uh, and, and realistic at the moment is not uh, kind of an orderly uh, political transition, but but rather uh, a sort of eruption of uh, of violence or social breakdown, something that that leads to kind of a very messy, chaotic, and potentially violent uh, scenario in which uh, the armed forces are kind of forced by. Uh, social circumstances to step in uh, and act. 
but the the ultimate denouement of, of something like that, I think, is is very hard to predict, uh, and is one that uh, for the United States is neither desirable nor likely to be something uh, that's easy to be too, easy for them to control. So, one of the other aspects uh, of uh, what's happening in Venezuela is geopolitical in nature, which is the support uh, that Maduro has of of Russia, China, Iran, uh, Cuba. To what extent is that external support valuable to him? Yes, I think it's been important, but with certain caveats. There's no doubt that Russia, over the last year and a half, has provided crucial support in the UN Security Council. I mean, it has stopped the matter moving forward in the UN Security Council by defending the the Maduro regime. Uh, It has offered its services via the the oil company Rosneft for triangulating its um, Venezuelan oil sales to avoid U.S. sanctions. So Rosneft has enabled Venezuelan oil to go into its vessels or its commissioned vessels and then be sold to to buyers all around the world. And Russia has also contributed, um, you know, occasional humanitarian supplies. It's it's sent its military engineers to maintain um, the, the 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 Venezuela's um, aerial defense system and other other weapons which which uh, Caracas has bought from Moscow over the last decade or so. But there's a limit. I don't think... uh, I think Russia regards uh, Venezuela as a relatively low-cost, low-risk irritant in in the underbelly of the United States, fundamentally. If the United States or or, or other powers in, in Latin America decided enough was enough, they would take some extremely risky, it would have to be said, extremely risky uh, military action against Venezuela. I don't think Russians would escalate. Um, I think Cuba's, Cuba is, is obviously a major player as well in, in keeping um, a Venezuela uh, afloat uh, with, its, uh, a, a, you know, with its advice, uh, supposedly with, its, uh, with help to in the security forces, the intelligence services, something Cuba disputes. Um, but the two are are very closely linked. Um, and uh, for Cuba, there will be no possibility of negotiating some form of transition in Venezuela, supporting such a transition without resolving its issues with the United States um, and particularly its issues with the Trump administration. So I think in both the case of Russia and Cuba, and I think these are the two most important allies of the Venezuelan government at the moment. I think China has perhaps lost some of its of its is zeal for supporting Maduro. It recognizes Maduro's uh, economic administration has been woeful over the last few years, for example. But I think with Russia and China, um, it would be ideal for them to be get involved in a negotiation process, uh, supporting the Venezuelan government as it discusses the fundamental issues of, of you know, bringing down the level of tensions in the country and resolving the, 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 the you know, the dispute over future elections. But in both their cases, it would also require putting at the centre, or, or rather, the centre of their negotiations, uh, the question of their relationships, uh, their relations with the United States, and that makes it all obviously very complicated, because the United States, Washington, might not be so disposed to broaden the the discussion as to Venezuela's future to take into uh, to to incorporate within it uh, issues as to future relations with with Cuba and and Russia, and particularly not 
in an election year. And Michael, what should we expect or or might occur in terms of continuing U.S. policy actions toward toward Venezuela? I think we can expect more of the same. And, um, you know, Ivan mentioned the elections. Increasingly, there's a sense that U.S. actions on Venezuela are driven uh, as much by politics in South Florida, where there is a uh, a small but but vocal Venezuelan diaspora that's allied closely with the kind of traditional Cuban diaspora uh, in obviously a, a very critical uh, swing state. Uh, so we can you know we can expect a lot of hardline rhetoric. I think we can expect uh, a continuation and a, and a hardening of targeted sanctions. Um, you know possibly. Uh, some adjustments to the economic sanctions to go after, for example, uh, any companies that are brokering uh, in Venezuelan oil and, and helping to uh, evade the, the U.S. sanctions on the state oil company PDVSA, uh, as Rosneft was until it was sanctioned uh, by the United States. So all of that, I think, is a kind of a, a, in a straight line from, from where we are now uh, and allows the Trump administration to uh, look and sound tough on Maduro um, without, on the one hand, risking any kind of uh, military adventure, which um, I think it should be very clear at this point, uh, despite the rhetoric of all options on the table, uh, is not a real uh, policy option that's that's being considered. Um, but also, on the other hand, not... Um, not really investing in a political process that would inevitably involve very difficult uh, compromises uh, that may uh, may not be comfortable for the Trump administration uh, in an election year. I think that could change uh, in the case of, of Trump being uh, reelected potentially, but um, I see U.S. policy uh, essentially uh, staying on a pretty straight line from here until November. So as we close, uh, I want you to look forward and, and help our listeners um, understand what we should be most paying attention to. Uh, as we've described, it's a really terrific situation for the people within the country. Um, Maduro is, is you know, weathered many a storm. Um, in terms of understanding where things are going and, and what might happen in the future, what are, I'd like to ask each of you, what are the most important things to pay attention to? I would suggest that uh, if we're looking at the, 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 the thinking within the Maduro administration, the thinking around Maduro, the crucial element will be the question of the military reaction to rising public unrest in, in Venezuela. If the military take the view that the fundamental order and sovereignty and stability of Venezuela is at threat uh, by the, the extent of public demand, public unrest, then they will be, uh, they will, well, will insist that Maduro uh, come to some form of a, a remedy or solution. And the only one which he could take at the moment, which would not be leaving power or you know, allowing for transition, would be to arrange some form of agreement or, or, or truce with the opposition to allow for a great increase in humanitarian aid to the country. Yes, it's not a long-term solution. It doesn't address the structural 
uh, errors of Maduro's government, particularly in economic policy, uh, and it wouldn't ne- necessarily change the the, the 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 government's efforts to sideline, marginalise, and persecute the, the the opposition. But it would um, allow a breathing space. It would allow major humanitarian bodies into the country uh, to, to operate independently of control of the government and opposition. And there is certain support for this in Latin America and even in the United States as well. It could come to pass in the next few weeks that the situation is so dire that leaders on both the government side around Maduro and the opposition side realize that this is the best way forward. And if that happens, it does open up possibilities further down the line of sitting down for serious negotiations. But if Both sides remain in their trenches, refusing to consider any sort of compromise. I do fear that we will see uh, a major worsening of the situation in the coming months, and the consequences are very unpredictable. Michael? Well, I completely agree that the military is the crucial actor. Um, it's a bit of a black box. We have very little insight there, but it is the the one actor uh, above all who, that could convince Maduro to to engage in a serious Uh, political engagement with the opposition, whether it's narrow around issues of humanitarian assistance or, or more broadly around uh, restoring uh, governance uh, to the country. Um, I'd mention two other issues. In the short term, uh, obviously, the uh, the pandemic um, Venezuela has, it appears so far, had a, a fairly limited outbreak, even with uh, the, the limits on the information we have there. Um, but I think, as Ivan correctly pointed out, to the extent that this um, it metastasizes at all the capacity of the country to deal with uh, community transition and, and uh, the need for uh, widespread hospitalization is extremely fragile. Uh, we could be looking at a real, a real catastrophe there. Um, compounded by some of the the other issues, including uh, you know, gas shortages and, and food shortages that we've mentioned. In the medium term, um, I think it'll be really important and interesting to see whether the opposition can recover uh, its capacity to organize. Um, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, Guaido was leading massive marches uh, in the streets of Caracas and other cities. There was a real palpable sense of energy uh, on the streets in Venezuela. Uh, today, you know, there is no less discontent with Maduro and, and his catastrophic uh, governance of the country. Um, but uh, due to, I think, both political exhaustion, repression, and now uh, the pandemic lockdown, uh, the, the opposition has uh, almost zero ability uh, to mobilize. So these protests that Ivan mentioned, while frequent, widespread, um, often in, in response to, uh, you know, social and economic issues are not are not catalyzed or channeled uh, politically in any way uh, by the political opposition. So this is a, a real kind of crucial few months for them to try to recover uh, some momentum. And looking towards the end of the year, uh, we do expect an, an election for the National Assembly, which Maduro will certainly look to exploit uh, and orchestrate um, to take over uh, control of the one uh, kind of remaining bastion of democracy in the country, the one uh, piece of the, the the government that the opposition uh, controls today, which gives Guaido his legitimacy as interim president in the, in the eyes of some 60 countries. Uh, so, so really, uh, 
uh, a kind of critical uh, several months with some very difficult decisions uh, for opposition leaders to make under very trying circumstances. Michael Camilleri of the Inter-American Dialogue and Ivan Briscoe of the International Crisis Group, I want to thank you so much for being on Deep Dish and helping us understand the developments in Venezuela. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks, Brian. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. The Chicago Council on Global Affairs is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from listeners like you to support our programming. So if you like the show, please consider supporting our work by going to thechicagocouncil.org slash donate. If you're looking for more Deep Dish, please tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our producer for this episode is Molly Meyer, and our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. Deep Dish.